So we're starting a new series this morning called The Armor of God, which is going to be based on Paul's letter to the Ephesians and is focused on spiritual warfare. Now, there's one thing I want to ask in this series before we get started. If you have any questions during this series, the six, seven, eight weeks, however long it may be, uh, no matter how big or how small, I want you to send them to us. Whether you text me directly, whether you stick it in a Connect card uh, and, and put it in the offering box. If you're, you're homesick or you live out of the, the state and you, you're watching online, you, there's an app, there's the website, they have a place where you can fill this out. Please put in your questions. Spiritual warfare uh, is such a huge topic. And there have been so many teachers, so many books on this over the centuries that it, we will no way think of every question to address in this time. So it will be helpful for us if you submit questions that you have or questions that you know somebody else has asked and so we can address them in future sermons or even we'll do like a Q&A uh, at the end. All right. With that said, I'm going to give you a little context to the passage that we're covering over these next several weeks. Uh, it's in the book of Ephesians, which was a letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, the church there. Now, Paul had planted this church, and he pastored this church for a few years before he left. And when he writes this letter, it's been about five years since he's been gone. He's now a prisoner in Rome. He's awaiting trial for spreading the gospel. And he decides to write the Ephesian church a letter of challenge and of encouragement. And in the first few chapters of Ephesians, there's six, he talks about the new life that we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. The new life that we have as we put our faith in him as Lord and as of Savior. Now, in the back three chapters, he talks about, okay, here's how you live out that new life that you have. And then he gets ready to close out his letter. And he starts to discuss the battle that we are going to face as believers in this new life that we're living. And I'm going to read just a few verses here. He says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. And then Paul goes on to talk about the armor of God, the different pieces of it, uh, you know, the helmet, all of that stuff. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But the, this week, what we're doing is we're setting up a foundation for the entire series. Now, why is this foundation, why is this series important? Well, I'm read it, I'm going to read it again. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's like Paul in this letter is saying, like, look, before I wrap this letter up, I need you to understand and be reminded who the real enemy is in this world. And this makes sense. Like, even if you have no military training, like, maybe you're like me. The extent of your military training is on an Xbox controller. This is still an easy enough idea to understand that you cannot win a battle 
if you do not understand who you're fighting against. You have to know who the enemy is. And Paul says, listen, your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. And this is impacting to have Paul say this because he has been beaten four times by flesh and blood. He has been criticized by flesh and blood. He has been imprisoned by flesh and blood. So Paul could be tempted, like many of us are, to see other people as our enemies. But Paul knew better. Paul is saying even though that evil can be embodied in flesh and blood, war, cruelty, violence, greed, crime, human trafficking, whatever it may be, even though flesh and blood can carry it out, it is not flesh and blood that is ultimately behind it all. Let's pause for a moment. Greg, would you do me a favor? Shut the back door. It's opening from the street. Close look like, because you're all going to get frozen and you're not going to hear anything that I say. That was the work of the devil. No, no, the other one. There we go. Popped open on us. Now we're good. All right. Now, Paul is saying, look, there is an evil that is behind everything. Have you ever considered that? Of all the horrible things you have seen, and some you've seen much, some of you I know have seen much worse than others. Have you ever thought about the forces of evil that are at work that you cannot see driving it all? I pose this question because I feel like in our Western, in our modern culture, we can dismiss this truth as fairy tales or legend. And we believe that we've evolved to this place in intellect that we now know everything must have a natural cause. So we don't leave room for greater evil in our conversations. I mean, think about it. when you watch the news, when's the last time you saw reporters talking about the evil forces behind everything going on? Andrew Del Banco, he's a, a, a liberal professor at the Columbia University, not a Christian, but he wrote a book, I think about 30 years ago now, and he called it The Death of Satan. And in this book, he argues that the diminishing belief in evil has led to a loss of moral clarity in our culture. He opens the book with this. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources for coping with it. The evil that has always been there is still there, but we've gotten rid of the idea of sin. We've gotten rid of the idea of sinners. We've gotten rid of the idea of original sin, and we've gotten rid of the idea of the devil. We've gotten rid of the idea of all these transcendent aspects, and now we're absolutely astounded and dumbfounded that there's something clearly going on beyond our control, our ability to explain, but we now have no way to deal with it. I agree. Because of our desire to remove God from our country, our culture is now in a place where it's not able to account for the depth and pervasiveness of evil. We'll talk about how things are evil, but that as far as and deep as we're willing to go. Now, thankfully, the Bible doesn't have that problem. The Bible has no problem talking about the depth of evil and where it comes from. And the Bible doesn't care if you, you think these are such lofty ideas that they're legend or fantasy. The Bible says this is the way that it is. Either you can ignore it and get eaten up by it, or you can accept it and defeat it. 
And this is important because even for Christians, it is only when we understand that evil exists and the depth and pervasiveness of that evil that we're going to wake up. I love what John Piper says. I think that there are far too many Christians who live their Christian life as if it's peacetime. Jesus died for me. He loves me. La, 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 la. And I just go through with my head in the clouds. Completely and utterly aloof to the enemy that seeks to destroy us. And that's what I'm praying this series, this series will partly do, that it will wake the church up because it is not peacetime. Nowhere do you find that in the Bible. It's wartime. It is a time of war. And unlike uh, war in this world that the, where the ultimate cost is your life, this war, the ultimate cost is your soul. And make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. The enemy is coming after you. And he is coming after me. So we cannot afford to stick our heads in the sand. Are you with me, church? Amen. Now, obviously, who is this enemy? No surprise, you know that I'm referring to Satan. His very name in the Greek, it means adversary. And of his other titles, like devil or diablos in, in, in the Hebrew, it means the one who slanders. Listen to some of the other names the Bible gives Satan. Serpent, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the evil one. Now, according to Scripture, and I'm going to go through this quickly. We don't have time for everything I'd want to say today, although I'd love to spend three hours doing that. I'm not sure you'd stick around with me. We read that, that Lucifer, when that was his name before he fell, was a high-ranking uh, angel. And at some point, he looked at himself in the mirror, and he looked so good, he couldn't look away. You ever done that? You've been dressed up so nice, you see yourself in the mirror, and you're like, man, I got it going on today, right? Am I the only one that's done that? You're like, well, how could you do right? Okay, maybe I am. Anyway, he got in front of the mirror. He got so excited about himself, he decided, I want to become God. And what seems Scripture seems to reveal is that he led other angels to say, look, I can be better God than God. And so he led a rebellion. Obviously, we know that he was defeated as we read that he was thrown from heaven like a bolt of lightning, as Jesus would say. We know that he's powerful, he's intelligent, and he is good-looking. I'm not sure where the picture of horns and the, the red and the ugly little uh, devil comes from, but Scripture says this in Ezekiel 28:17, speaking partly of Satan, it says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Paul says in Corinthians that sometimes he comes as an angel of light. Don't get me wrong, he is a slick speaker. He's a good-looking dude. Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Steve Pratt, they got nothing. <laughs> nothing on Satan. As good-looking as they are. And his sole desire is to exalt himself above God. And it's clear that he has some level of authority in this world, though it doesn't fully explain where that authority begins and ends. There is a certain level of freedom and influence that God still allows him to have. We, all know, we also know, if you've ever read the, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, where Daniel talks about uh, being revealed to him by an angel, that, that there's angels for God and angels for, for, for Satan that were uh, battling each other for controls of nations. 
Now, we don't know how that was changed by Jesus' death and a resurrection, but the point is, make no doubt about it. Satan is still a strong enemy. He is not compared to a lion or to a dragon in the Bible just to be colorful. Jesus calls a Satan in John 10.10. He is someone who comes, a thief, to steal, to kill, to destroy. He is without a doubt an enemy of you and me. If you sit here today and your faith is in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, he is your enemy. Now when it comes to spiritual warfare, how does he steal, how does he kill, and how does he destroy? Satan seems to work through two other great enemies that we have. Every Christian has three main enemies. Satan is one of them, and he works through the other two. The first one being the world. The world, the Greek here is cosmos. And that represents to the culture that surrounds us, the world around us. This is why believers are warned not to love the world or anything in the world, as we read in 1 John 2.15. Jim Osmond would say that worldliness is a way of thinking and overall philosophy of life which stirs the flesh to indulge in specific sins. It is a mindset and a worldview, a systematic approach to life, which leaves no room for God and his word. It is a way of thinking that is humanistic, man-centered, and self-sufficient. In other words, I do not need God, and I will live the way that I want to live and do what I want to do. And behind all of it is the devil at work. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, it talks about how Satan works through unbelievers who are referred to as the children of disobedience to do his work. We read in Corinthians that Satan actually works to blind the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth of Jesus Christ. If you sit here today and you're like, Jesus, not my Lord and Savior. I don't know if he's around. I, I don't know if I believe. Have you ever considered the reason that you're in that place is not because God is not real. It's not because sin does not keep you from God. It's not because Jesus never died and rose again. But literally Satan and the forces of evil are working to blind you. They're working to keep you from seeing who God is. So that you continue to serve his purposes. Now sometimes... His influence can be very, very, very subtle. Um, take, for example, and, and how he does this. Uh, let's see. I was watching uh, YouTube the other day, and um, a video of uh, Taylor Swift came up. Okay, everybody knows who Taylor Swift is, right? She's like the most popular singer in the world. And there's this video from one of her concerts, and there's this girl, she had to be 14, 15, She's literally in tears. Tears are flowing down her face. She's jumping up and down as Taylor is on stage in front of her singing. Just singing her heart out. And this, this girl is having this emotional experience and she is singing out. And so I went up to look at some of the lyrics of what Taylor was singing. And these lyrics, though they're to a great beat and they sound fun, they are literally in direct opposition of what God tells us that we should be searching for in terms of a fulfilled life and love. 
Now, I'm not saying Taylor Swift is the devil. But what I'm saying is the devil will work through people who are not following God to spread things that will direct other people away from God. Now, some people will be like, oh, you're, you're, you're going overboard here. Whatever you consume, whatever you listen to, whatever you watch, I don't care what it is, it has an impact on you. And if you don't understand that, you're being naive. For good or for worse, everything we allow ourselves to consume has an impact on us. And the devil wants to work through this world to have us consume what the world says we should do and how we should live and to ignore the things of God. Now, the other enemy Satan tries to work through besides the world is our flesh. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The scripture, in Scripture, the flesh is often referring to our, our sin nature. Okay, there are sin nature that longs to gratify our own desires, to please ourselves, to leave us in control of our lives, to get our own way. It represents our capacity to leave God out of our life when we see fit or completely. Now listen, I don't want to give the devil too much credit because our sin nature does not need the devil to help out. For us to choose sin is... Like I said, in our nature. In fact, if you read the New Testament, demons, they're mentioned like 10 times. Our flesh is mentioned 50 times. They're about, give or take a few. Your flesh, your desire to live your own life, to be selfish, to be full of your own desires, is the far most danger to your life and walk with God, more than anything else. But just like the world, Satan loves to come in and fan the flames. There was this uh, Christian counselor, his name was John White, died a few years ago. And he wrote a book on how the devil works. And he said, and you musicians, you're going to know this. I did not know this, that if you take a piano and you open up the top and you go to sing a tune, that whatever string your voice is attuned to, it's going to cause that particular string to vibrate. Did you know that? Like you literally can go to it and you know, and if the piano doesn't break, like, whatever it's attuned to, that'll start to vibrate. Even if you haven't touched it. And I think this is a great metaphor for what the devil does. The devil does not come in and flip some switch to make you from being a bad person, good person to a bad person. Instead, he's going to sing the notes that he knows you're going to respond to. Speaking to the Pharisee, Jesus says this in John 8, 44. He goes, you are of... Uh, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil works to aggravate the sins, the pride, the insecurities that you already have in you. This is why we read in Ephesians 4, we, where Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your, anybody? On your anger. Because what is he going to say? Don't give that devil, the, the devil that kind of opportunity. That kind of opportunity to fan the flames of your anger, to destroy your relationships. 
You see, the devil wants to spread what's inside of you that is not of God. Now, he did, the devil doesn't come to you, right? Matt, he doesn't come to you and say, Matt, you're a blue dog who likes to swim, right? Because if the devil came to Matt to said that, Matt would be like, unless he has some thing with dog I don't know about, he's going to be like, that's insane. I'm not a blue dog. He doesn't do that because he knows you know that's a farce. He's going to come and fan the flames of things you're already wrestling with. Thoughts and feelings that he is going to bring, and however that he brings it, and, and the Bible doesn't really speak to it, but I always like to refer to it as little whispers. And not even audible whispers, but little whispers to your heart. If you're standing there and you're angry at someone's, what somebody said, this little whisper will come in and go, who, how dare they? Speak that to you. Who do they think they are? Oh, we've all had that happen. Fanning the flames of what's already there. Now, there's two major ways that Satan does this, that he lies to you. This is how he does it. He does it through lies. Temptation and accusation. Now, temptation, what it does is it essentially gets you to have too high of a view of yourself. So that you go off and you do things that you shouldn't be doing. Accusation, is, is, uh, accusation, on the other hand, is the devil's way of trying to get you to think too low of yourself. And so that in this safe, self-hating view, you go do and think, do things that you shouldn't. And both ways work. In temptation, God is hiding, uh, Satan is trying to hide God's holiness from you and how much he hates and detests sin. And in accusation, he's trying to hide God's love from you and grace from you and mercy from you. Now, how do those lies work? Thomas Brooke, Thomas Brooks, he was a 17th century preacher and he wrote a book. I got this book last week. I don't know why, how I've lived 44 years, 45 years now of my life without this book. I kid you not, buy this book. It is called Precious, Precious Remedies against Satan's devices. Precious remedies against Satan's devices. And he goes in there and he lists out all the ways that Satan lies to you. And then he gives you the remedies, the way to think about those lies so that you are not deceived. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. I love it. I cannot stop reading it. I'll give you a couple examples. The first device Satan shows, uh, Brooks would say is what's called, where he shows you the bait and he hides the hook where Satan is like a, a, a fisherman. And he'll, he'll show you a short-term pleasure, okay? Something you want, you're excited for. And he'll do his best to hide and distract you from the misery that's gonna come when you give into that sin. Oh, we have all know that one well, don't we? We've all experienced that one. The second one, he'll get us to rationalize our sin as virtue. I'm not greedy, I'm thrifty. Right? Now, I'm not nosy. I'm not a gossip. I'm just concerned. Right? I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. Another one is he'll get you to show you the sins of other Christian leaders. And so you say to yourself, well, wow, well, he did these things too, so they're not that bad. No one's really that pure. And these are just a few. On the flip side, Satan will accuse us, and he has devices for that too. And he does this by causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. If you ever read parenting books, uh, a consistent uh, 
teaching you will come across is that you have to give way more encouragements to your children um, than you give criticisms. Like for every one criticism, you need to give them like five compliments because otherwise they're going to throw up, uh, grow up, excuse me, hating and doubting themselves. You ever notice that about yourself? You could have someone say 10 great things to you one day. Another person will say one bad thing. What are you going to dwell on? The one bad thing. And there's biblical reasons for that. And I believe the biblical reason for that is because you and I, whether we recognize God or not, at our core, we know something is wrong with us. We know that we are not the way that we should be. And so Brooks will say this. He'll say, for every one look at at your sin, you need to take five looks at your Savior. But the devil wants it to be the opposite. So he causes Christians to obsess over past sins. He also will cause, uh, influence Christians to think that their troubles that they're going through must be punishment. Why did this happen to me? God must be punishing me. Also by influencing Christians to think that They can't be Christians because they have certain struggles. They think certain things, and they say, man, if I I was a real Christian, I wouldn't struggle with this. I wouldn't think about this. You recognize any of these in your life? Satan is just trying to play us like a piano. He knows the strings that you have. You must be aware of his schemes. You must be aware of what he is doing out there. And that's what we're fighting, the schemes of the devil. Now, let me be clear in all of this. Satan is a defeated foe. The the war, it's already been won. You read Colossians 2, it talks about this, how Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And we know that our study in Revelation Christ is going to return one day. He's going to defeat Satan and his demons and throw them into the lake of fire. So uh, as dangerous as I talk about Satan being, we cannot make him bigger than he is. He's not some like minor God. Him and Jesus don't go toe to toe. He is a finite creature like you or me. He has limits. And that's why you'll often refer to me, hear me refer to him as the enemy because he can't be everywhere. And I always kind of laugh when people like say, the devil's attacking me. And I'm like, do you really think you're that important? Of all the people he's going to spend time with, it's going to be you? So usually it's probably uh, however it works. And we don't know a lot about spiritual warfare. The Bible's silent a lot on a lot of it, probably for a good reason. It's probably one of his demons that will coming in. If it's not just our flesh causing us trouble on their own. But none of them are to be afraid. Satan and all of, his, all of his demons, they're like dogs on a leash. Can they bite? Are they dangerous? Yes. But as long as you're not foolish enough to walk in to the range of their chain, they pose no harm. So you need to be aware. You need to be alert. You need to take it seriously, but you should not be afraid. And I say this because there's, there's like two mistakes that happen when it comes to spiritual warfare. 
First mistake is that we can ignore him and pretend it's not, he's not there. That we can see, it's like seeing a dog, a big dog sitting there in his doghouse and, and, and we see a chain and then we just go walking past by as if that chain must be short enough. Big mistake. The second mistake though that we can also make is where we make Satan our focus, that our eyes are on him. And the, and, the, and the danger here is when we take either one of these views, it causes us to it causes us to have too simplistic understanding of what we're dealing with. Um, what was his name? Uh, Richard Baxter, another preacher. He preached a sermon once on melancholy. And he said, if you're dealing with melancholy, which is an old-time word for depression, he says, well, your depression could be caused by the physical. You could need some medicine. You could need some food. Sometimes you're just hangry, right? Uh, you could uh, be melancholy because uh, in your temperament, there's something that you're struggling with and you just need lots of love and affirmation. Uh, there could be a moral cause. You're guilty over something and, and you need to repent and to reconcile. Or you could have the enemy in your ear. Or there could be one of these or multiple of these. And what I love about his approach is he doesn't say, well, nothing is the enemy, but he also doesn't say everything is the enemy. And we see this today. We see some Christians, they never consider that the enemy is at work trying to influence them not to follow God. On the other hand, we have Christians who think literally everything is the devil. If you're angry, it's not, man, you're, sin. you're angry in your sin. It's you have a spirit of anger on you or in you. Or you have a family curse of anger that you're suffering from. And I think both of these extremes please the enemy. Because we're so narrow in our approach to the things that we're battling that we can't see everything that the enemy that is trying to throw at us or that the world is throwing at us or we're just throwing at ourselves in our sin. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns us not to go beyond what is written, not to establish our lives beyond what is written. You know, in World War II, the Allied forces, uh, my grandpa used to show me pictures of these, they created fake tank tanks among other military so that the Germans, when they were bombing, they'd waste their ammunition and time bombing things that were not real, and it worked. It was a huge success. And I think in the same way, when we get caused up in spiritual warfare, doing things beyond Scripture that are a waste of time, that's exactly what we're doing is we're wasting time. Paul does not urge us to go out and fight the devil. He doesn't urge us to go out and be a demon slayer. He says, stand. 13, verse 13 of Ephesians 6 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, to resist. That's what is given to you. That is what you're told to do. Now, we, we want to go beyond this because, let's be honest, it's not powerful. It doesn't feel powerful. It doesn't feel exciting. We want to go fight the enemy, fight the devil, because we feel like superpowers, superheroes. But when I read Scripture, if you believe not to go beyond Scripture, I don't think the devil cares if you cast out a demon and then go home to a porn addiction or a broken marriage. I think Satan loves to deceive us 
by tricking us into gimmicks and, and campaigns and, and different publicized methods of fighting demons and then watch us abandon the weapons that he has given us that are divinely powerful, which is the gospel. That is what the armor of God is about. That's what delivers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the error, uh, from error to truth. That's what moves us from Satan to God. You can bind Satan all day long. He don't care. He don't care. And you ever ask questions when you bind Satan, how long does it last? You ever wonder that? No one ever asked that question. I mean, if we could bind Satan, why don't we just bind him once and for all and he never gets freed? These are questions that we do not ask when we go beyond Scripture. He, I don't think he cares what you do as long as you don't share the gospel because that is what will defeat him. You can rebuke him until you are blue in the face and he's going to go right along deceiving multitudes and millions. He does not care as long as your love and focus is not on his truth. Paul says you need to stand firm. That's how you fight. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He'll flee. You resist the devil. How do you do that? You resist the devil by taking his lies and speaking truth into them. That's what you do. That's what this precious remedies that Brooks wrote about are. They're all the truth that you speak into the lies. Do you know which devices God, Satan is using on you? Do you know what remedies God has given you in his word? This is where the armor of God comes in. It fights against the lies of the devil. When you're tempted to go sin, it says, man, Jesus died on the Christ for my sins. He literally gave his life to save me from these things, these things that are not ultimately good for me, even though in my sin I want them. So how could I go through with them? And we resist. On the other hand, those of us who sin, and then we say, God's done with me. I'm not good enough. I'm not pure enough. I'm not right enough. The truth of the armor of God that says, I'm absolutely loved because of what Christ has done for me upon the cross. God sees me in Jesus Christ, and I'm as loved as much now as I am four billion years from now because of Christ. That is how we resist the lies of the devil. That is how we win spiritual warfare. And then we take those truths out to a world who desperately needs them. That is what the armor of God is all about. Thomas Brooks, and I'll end with this. He said, for those who feel too guilty, who feel so accused, remember the wife of the bill collector who said, if I owe you anything, see my husband. In the same way, when the devil comes to the believer, claiming that a bill be paid, the believer only must say, if I owe you anything, see my Christ. For if we are ever discouraged, we should repent. We should repent because we're refusing to believe of the richness and freeness and fullness and everlastingness of God's love. We're refusing to put our faith in his power, his glory, his sufficiency. 
We're refusing to put our eyes on the worth and the glory and the fullness and the largeness and completeness of his righteousness that has been given to us by faith. Brooks goes on to say, God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be, to be rented and torn into pieces by discouragement. That is spiritual warfare. And if we don't pay attention, the lies of the devil will drag us down into a pit. But if we are aware, we pay attention to the lies and we claim the armor of God, which is the truth of salvation for all mankind, that is what will defeat Satan. That is what we will stand firm and confident in and tell the day that the God of peace, as we read in Romans 16, will crush Satan under our feet. Amen.